today I'm joined by Anjali, Naomi, and Stephanie, and we're going to be talking about international arbitration, their experiences, and advice. So, hi, welcome to my podcast. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Malika. Well, maybe I'll go first. Um, <clears throat> my name is Anjali Welsh Casey. I'm a barrister at Essex Court Chambers in London, and I... Um, I predominantly do international arbitration work. I appear as counsel in cases, e um, either investment treaty cases or commercial arbitration cases or cases before the English courts related to arbitration. Um, and um, I also sit as arbitrator. So insofar as my arbitration practice is concerned, that's what I do. Hi, my name's Naomi Briarcliffe. I'm a partner at Squire Patton Boggs and a solicitor advocate. I act as counsel and advocate in international arbitration cases, um, both commercial and investment treaty, and I also have a particular specialism in public international law. Hi, I'm Steph Collins. I'm a senior associate at Gibson Dunn. Um, I'm a solicitor advocate and I specialise in investment treaty arbitration and commercial arbitration, and I also advise on public international law matters. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. Um, so I guess we could kick off with your career journeys. How was your experience going into international arbitration and law in general? Who would you like to start? Whoever um, <laughs> wants to start. Do you want me to go first again? Sure. Okay. Um, well, so I increasingly get asked about um, advice for people who want to get international into international arbitration. And I have to say that my advice is really pretty useless, partly because it's a bit outdated now, um, but also partly because I really got into international arbitration um, by happenstance. So um, I read modern history as an undergraduate, so I'm not a lawyer really. Um, and when it came to the end of my degree, I didn't really know what to do, but I knew that I loved academic work and I also knew that I loved people. So law seemed to be like the perfect sort of compromise between those two extremes. Um, but being a non-lawyer, I had no idea how to do it um, because at least in my experience, well, the law, at that time it may have changed, but when law firms came to university, they sort of hunted out the lawyers rather than non-lawyers. So I just applied to um, well, there was actually there was also something else which was really important to me, which is basically I didn't have the funds to be able to go and become a lawyer. So I work, did manage to work out that big city firms paid for you to both do your law conversion course and then also to do what was then your LPC course, which was the sort of practical year, practical slash academic year, which taught you how to write letters and things like that. Um, and then they gave you a training contract which allowed you to qualify as a lawyer. So that's four years, which they basically either provided financial assistance for or paid for. So I thought, okay, well, that sounds good, I'll do that. And then um, I applied to not many law firms. In fact, I only really remember getting one interview um, and that was at A&O, which was sort of, you know, Alan Overy, alphabetically A. <laughs> it all seemed, it was all a bit, a bit random. Anyway, they gave me a training contract place and um, that was it. Um, and I knew from fairly early on that I wanted to qualify into litigation because that was the most academic of the um, different um, offerings at that time. 
Um, and then I got into, qualified into litigation and started, and I had actually an interest in public law and I started doing quite a lot of public law work. And one of the partners who was an international arbitration specialist randomly had a lot of judicial review, but not in the English jurisdiction and the Central American jurisdiction. So he brought me in to deal with that. Um, but because he was an arbitration specialist, he kept persuading his client to put arbitration clauses in all their contracts. And then it was his client kept getting into fights. And so we kept ending up in arbitration. And then before I knew it, I had an international arbitration expertise. <laughs> so it was all pretty random and not by design, um, really. So that's a bit unhelpful for someone who's trying to map out a sort of more organised way of getting into the field. No, I mean, or what did you, yeah, no, how did you, was your, your experience any less random? Uh, I mean, it was less random in the sense that I had a very clear idea about what I wanted to do in law. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, not really from any basis of knowledge, though. So I did also didn't do law. Um, that's my undergraduate degree. I did social and political sciences. And in the course of that, I came across this concept of public international law. And I thought it sounded really cool. And like kind of the basically <laughs> um, where I could do international politics without going into international politics. Um, and um, I googled public international law. Uh, best law firms in public international law is probably why I ended up Google. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, came across at the time, um, Evershade was the top of the pile, Robin Bundy um, in Paris. And I uh, therefore applied for a vacation scheme at Evershade in my second year of university. Like Angeline, um, Finances were also a concern, and I had worked out that if you did, uh, you could get work experience placements that paid you in the summer holidays rather than going back home and working um, as a waitress, which is what I did normally. I could actually get some work experience if, um, and get it paid. So I got my vacation scheme at, um, at Eversheds. Um, I should say that before the interview, I did manage to work out that probably only about five people in the entire firm did public international law, and um, and I I'd, I'd, I'd need to talk about something else in the interview if I was going to get past the interview, um, and so I sort of wrote down a list of all of the temp jobs and part-time things I'd done in the past and um, constructed some kind of um, connection to law, so I'd been a receptionist in a recruitment agency and therefore could talk a little bit about employment law to some extent or you know give a bit of a story because um you need obviously to have some demonstrate some sort of commercial awareness when you go into those types of things um and then i uh vacation scheme went well and i managed to qualify into i managed to get the training contract with Eversheds. um i then had a total freak out because (laughs) i realized that actually um training contract was going to mean I had to go and do a banking seat and a um, another transactional seat in, with, in respect of which I thought I would have no interest at all and I'd heard that in fact um, people who do public international law mainly at the bar so I went off on a bit of a tangent deferred my training contract and uh, for a year and tried to I thought about going to the bar and perhaps we'll talk about why I didn't a bit later um, and I didn't and I went and worked at Eversheds um, and I've been in law ever since. I've moved law firms. I was at Allen and Avery um, for the longest period, and um, and then recently I moved to Squire Patton Boggs um, as a partner. Thank you. Um, and Stephanie, what was your career like? Uh, because I know you 
uh, come from a law background, so it would be interesting to hear the differences between a non-law and law background. Yeah, so some similarities and some differences. I have always wanted to be a lawyer since I was like quite small. <laughs> I think maybe, and I don't know if any of you watched Judge John Deed when you were in I used to watch it with my mum and I, I just decided that that's what I wanted to do and just assumed that I would do law and then end up, you know, being caught all the time defending all sorts of horrible people and whatever. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I, I always wanted to do law and I, like Naomi, have always been interested in sort of, um, in politics and international relations. And even when I was applying for my law degree, kind of knew that that was the area that I wanted to do, although I didn't know that international arbitration was a thing. Um, but I did focus my um, personal statement on that sort of area of law. And then when I did my law degree, I did my degree at um, UCL, I um, took public international law as one of my modules and I did a year abroad and I did more public international law there. So I, I was sort of aware that that's where my interest um, lay. At UCL, partly I think because it's London University, there was a very strong focus on law firms coming to recruit you. And I had never heard of Alan Novery or Linklater or Freshfield or any of these law firms before. And then from about week one, they were just, these names just suddenly kind of were in my orbit. And everybody was applying for these kind of open days and vacation schemes. And I had never heard of any of these things. So I just kind of did what everybody else was doing and kind of randomly, a, a bit like Angeline, just applied for A&O and then ended up on a vacation scheme with one of my flatmates. And, you know, and that's and that's what happened. But, I mean, for me, again, getting a training contract um, and, get, and getting my LPC paid for was absolutely crucial. And many people at UCL or, and, and in other universities who I know, um, simply you know paid for their LPC in the hope that they would get a job afterwards and I definitely wasn't in that situation so getting the training contract before that was pretty important to me and that's what happened and then when I started my training contract um, at a &O, it, it did become apparent to me really quickly that I was right in, in terms of that area of law is what I wanted to do and international arbitration was kind of the closest fit to that um, but of course, as Naomi says, it's only a very small number of people that are kind of doing the, the pure PIL stuff um, and whatever. But I should say that I, th I think it's important to keep an open mind because I did do um, leverage finance as a seat. I did private equity as a seat <clears throat> and I loved both of them. And I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed both of those seats. Um, I also did a seat in Singapore, an arbitration seat, which was which was fantastic. Um, so training contract for me was a pretty formative experience um, and I did like Naomi consider going to the bar and I mean maybe we could come back to it but for various reasons decided not to and I think in hindsight that was the right decision for me um, but yeah maybe we'll come back to that later. Thank you so much. Um, so I heard that all of you mentioned that a very heavy factor in your decisions was that law firms paid for your LPC and a uh, financial factor was quite heavy in your uh, career journeys. So in hindsight, if you would have advised your younger self to do something differently or give advice to them, what would you say? I don't know whether Naomi might be the best person to start on this because I think you probably would give your younger self more optimistic advice than I would give my younger self. So you want, do you want to... Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly took a lot of decisions that were based on 
um, finances um, as a younger lawyer. Um, I mean, as it happens, you know, things have worked out. But I mean, my primary reason for not going to the bar was financial. Um, I actually, I mean, you know, I did. I, so at the time, I don't know if it's this, exactly the same now. You can tell me if it isn't. But you, you know, as a law lawyer, you did your GDL and then you do your bar vocational course um, afterwards before going to the bar. And both of those courses at the time cost about seven thousand pounds. I think it's much more now. Um, and you had to live in London. Um, and so, you know, as both, um, as, as Steph mentions, obviously the law firms, if you've got training contracts, you usually pay for those courses, which was um, hugely, which was fantastic. And they still do. Um, but if you go to the bar, that's not the case. And moreover, you know, once you, if, you, if you've got a law firm paying for your um, GDL and your LPC, you know you're going to get a job at the end of it too. But the bar, that's not the case, again, because you apply at a different stage of your um, of, the, of, of things to get um, your pupillage. Um, you can apply for scholarships, and I did apply for a scholarship, but the scholarships, there's only very, very few scholarships which actually cover the costs of those courses. Um, it's more a kind of prestigious thing um, that then helps you get a pupillage. And I got a scholarship and it wasn't enough to cover the costs. And so because I didn't know any lawyers, didn't know the legal world, um, I concluded that it would it was all a bit too much of a financial risk to actually go to, to pursue the bar um, at that point. With hindsight, having got the scholarship, I think probably I would have got a pupillage and actually if you, you know, and things probably would have worked out and taking on that debt at the beginning um, wouldn't be such a major thing. You know, we're all now a number of years into our um, legal careers and, you know, if you, you it, it, it's it's financially lucrative, right, to, to work in the law in, in London. Um, but you have to have the confidence to know that it's going to work out at the beginning to make those decisions. Um, and perhaps... I should have made that decision at that time. So you should have been more confident. Perhaps I should I have mean, been more confident. Well, the evidence suggests you should have been more confident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In hindsight. In hindsight. But yeah. hindsight's, you know, yeah, a wonderful yeah, thing, yeah. right? And things have worked out. And well. things have worked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, How about you, Steph? Why didn't you go to the bar? Uh, mine, similar reasons, but more confidence-based. I didn't think that maybe I was good enough. I, I didn't think that... Yeah, I just didn't think I was good enough and then you know maybe I, and maybe I wouldn't have been successful at the bar who knows but then you get to a certain stage in your career and you sort of think oh I can I can also do they you know and so maybe but I don't regret going into a law firm I, lo- I love being in a law firm I loved my training contract like even if it sounds a bit sad I you know I, I just loved the experience and there were really hard times when you had to work really really hard but I just met so many amazing people from from that and you know best best friends amazing colleagues mentors etc um I also liked the stability that it has given me and it still gives me and my family so you know there are all manner of aspects that um as to why I'm pleased that I did that and also the quality of work I mean I I feel that I've been very lucky in the quality of work I've, I've got from the outset um and so so yeah so that's another reason but if I were to go back to your original question what I what I would have done um 
differently, I would have taken more time to get there. I don't know how many times I've opened an application to do a master's. I think probably five. <laughs> and I've never submitted it. And I, I should have. have I, I've not done it. Yeah. <laughs> and I should have done it straight after university. And I didn't assume I would get the result that I did get. I don't know why. I just didn't back myself to do as well as I actually ended up doing. So I then made, you know, made plans and then financially hadn't got myself in a position where I would have been able to do it anyway, but then also didn't realise that actually if I'd taken that alone to do it, it would have been fine because you, you just pay it off eventually and it would have been fine. And I also hadn't realised loads of people in our sector have done masters and that actually it's 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 by no means imperative, but it, it does give you a different perspective and a broader understanding of international arbitration and PIL. I do think, area of law. Yeah, I do think it's very helpful actually in international arbitration because whilst in this jurisdiction it's not um you know it's very it's common for you not to have a master's yeah. and to still have a fantastic career. Um, in other jurisdictions it's almost mandatory. Yeah. And so sometimes when you're pitching to certain clients and you don't have one, they question that, actually. Yeah, um, I totally agree. And also, I find that working in a US firm, even if I'm quite a bit more qualified than someone, I can I can often feel like, oh, maybe that person's actually got quite a bit more knowledge than me because they've you know spent quite a bit more time studying. And I'm, I'm almost jealous of that because I wish I'd had that experience as well. And I think along similar lines, because I'm at a US firm, um, although I think it's true in other jurisdictions too, Lots of those people have done other experiences, whether it's working for the United Nations or clerkships or um, working for the ICC or whatever. And I think that that gives you a broader um, array of skills, depth of knowledge that you don't necessarily get if you just go straight into the law. And I wish my younger self had known that it's okay to like take some time out to feel a bit less financially insecure for a while because you, you can get there eventually. You don't have to do everything in your 20s. Sorry. Um, but I think there are two things that sort of come from that and from what, what you guys are both saying, which is that, which I think is really difficult to get as perspective as someone who is an undergraduate, frankly, and that's totally normal, which is the one is the confidence issue, so sort of back yourself, but also this question of, your career is a marathon, not a race, Yeah, which I think is so important. Um, and that's what you're saying, Steph. And I think also that also plays into, and I'm slightly sort of going a little bit offbeat, but as you get, one of the things that it's not completely a female issue, it's also a male issue and increasingly becoming a male issue because men take more time off. But this idea of balancing your career alongside your family um, can be quite difficult at times. And I think one thing that's always been quite important to me at least in understanding that is your career is a marathon not a race you know you don't have to necessarily be the person who becomes partner I, I mean it's seven years in is what it used to be it's no longer yeah. that but I mean you don't you don't <laughs> yeah, in 15, <laughs> yeah. 15 16 whatever it is take silk or whatever none of that will matter um you know in, in taking an extra two or three years to do something will not matter in the long run but the problem is like personality types people that go into yeah. big law or you know the bar are the sorts of people that want to do everything yeah. in a hurry and if you don't do that you're somehow feeling like you're not where you should be 
And I think also that, you know, we have to think about the fact that some people, you know, it's hard to make that choice. I think it's hard to make that choice, particularly, um, I mean, you know, sort of as a woman and you see that men perhaps don't face some of the same issues. I know you said sort of we're seeing men increasingly taking time out, but they don't so often. Yeah. I'm just trying to encourage men listening to this to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is the only way in which you will get basically proper equality if if sort of both partners see it as their responsibility to look after children. But yeah, I agree. But, But I think... I don't know, Monica, what you think, but I think that's that's why the discussion like this is quite important. You know, listen yeah. to people who've been doing this for like well over a decade or yeah. more and understand that actually when you're looking at it from the benefit of experience, like this is what we would have done differently. We would have sort of taken into account confidence or taken into account the fact that it is okay to take a couple of extra years to get to the same place, you know, um, because life is about balance and, and having different experiences actually. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I've had the plans for this episode is because I wanted to have someone with loads of experiences and kind of see in hindsight what they would have done differently and what to focus on as someone who's just starting their careers. And from like the conversation, I have a few points that I wanted to kind of touch up on against uh, about again. Um, so one is doing a master's, which is quite an interesting point that Stephanie brought up um, and Naomi elaborated on. So would you recommend someone who just uh, graduated um, from their bachelor's degree, would you recommend them to go into master's right away or get some work experience and then do a master's? I think it can become quite difficult to walk away from your job once you're in it. Mm. Um, especially if things are going in a certain way and you want to kind of maintain that momentum. Um, And then you have other financial pressures, right? Once you qualify, if you buy a house or whatever. So it's not necessarily a case of, oh, I'll just take a year off because, you know, I still want to do this. There are other challenges that come into the mix um, or having children, for example. Um, But I know lots of people, including from our real team, that have done it, um and who have returned and you know like with all these things you take a year out and it feels I think before you do it like it's going to be a massive deal and then you come back and nobody remembers how long you were gone for yeah that's totally true no one remembers yeah Yeah. so I think it just depends on your individual circumstances and I don't you know and and how how you feel like what you're going to get from it if you if actually there's, there might be a point in your career where you actually think, oh, actually, I want to go back and learn a bit more about that. And so that's the right time to do it. Or you might want to do that before you start. I think it's individual. It might also be quite difficult to identify exactly what... I mean, obviously, some people will be clear about what masters they want to do. Mm. But to your point, if it's basically part of a career advancement plan, you may need to work for a bit to work out how and what direction you want your career to advance before you start pushing in that particular academic direction I would say I don't know what you think Naomi yeah no I, I agree with that I think um I think it's good I think it's a good thing to do I think probably if you can do it it's the, the best time to do it is when you're about three or four years qualified um because exactly for the reason that you say Angeline yeah. um you probably get more out of it once you have an idea of what it is you actually want to do um but I also agree with you Steph that it's difficult to step out 
once you're in and that was you know that's the reason I've not done a master's mm. but now I advise all associates anyone who comes to me that says <laughs> I have this idea that I quite like to do a master's I'm like get it out of your system go and do it um, <laughs> which is not really in my commercial interest right because actually um, and that's probably where uh, the people that I spoke to when I flirted with the idea of doing masters came from you know my commercial interest is for all associates to stay working in the team right particularly good ones who want to go and do masters but you know it's definitely in the interest of the relevant individuals to go and do that yeah um so thank you for that advice i think it was one of the things i was also kind of thinking about as someone who's doing their undergrad right now um and also another point i wanted to talk about um is working in law as a woman and what sort of challenges that can um pose in your career you know especially with balancing your work and your life with children and your family um in a male-dominated field so how were your experiences with that i can start because the reason i was late is that both my children are sick (laughs) (laughs) and after this i've got to go home and probably take annual leave all afternoon to look after them so that actually has only happened maybe a handful of times (laughs) so this doesn't happen all the time but that's just that's just reality, isn't it? You just have to face these scenarios like all the time and it's just hard. And that's not to say that, you know, the other person in your relationship can't do those things too. But oftentimes when you're the mum, I think it's it feels natural that those things in the first place might fall to you. But that's by no means saying every person is the same in that respect. Um, I think also taking time off um, feels hard I remember a partner saying to me male partner saying to me why with respect potentially why would I take that time off it's gonna negatively impact my career and I you know I just thought to myself well that is not a great example and not a great thing to be saying to a female associate and as I said before at the end of the day it actually doesn't really matter you could take five months off you could take 14 months off and most of the time nobody's any the wiser um, anyway, I'll start with that. I just want to say on that, but I mean, I, I it, it is there is a, there is a struggle. I think in terms of um, being um, present or available for uh, those who need you in your home life and your job, and that I mean that is a practical struggle which I think many people around our age have to deal with. But um, I also think what is really important to this. The answer to this question is that um, the default responsibility for looking after children at home is not a female issue. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons why I say that that's really important, I really noticed a difference. So I've I've got two children, like both of you, and um, I think the problem starts that as a woman, you're naturally the person who takes the first amount of maternity leave off because physically you have to be. Um, and um, because of that, it feels it just naturally happens that the default responsibility for childcare becomes yours. Not you might have an incredibly supportive partner, but it's just that you're the person who's thinking about it all the time. What then needs to happen is there's a shift so that the default default responsibility is not necessarily yours. And the way in which that I think is increasingly becoming the case, I hope, is that there is it is becoming increasingly common for more men to take time off particularly in this jurisdiction I think it's harder in other jurisdictions but we have quite good 
um, paternity leave now um, and once men start to take that time off then they start to assume all the default responsibility so I really noticed I have a very incredibly supportive partner but I noticed that when I went to Hong Kong on a convent and my partner was not working then the, the default responsibility completely shifted so I do think this is really important um, and that has to be normalised and I think it is becoming increasingly normalised and I think it's not just paternity leave it's also the pandemic people are working from home more now men sort of see that what, what's involved in, in doing some of the basic childcare home care responsibilities so I think that is really important and I'm, I'm sort of I'm hopeful that it will change I don't know but you guys are sort of more the cold face of that I'd say than I am so I don't know whether I mean I think something that's you know people should feel um uh, inspired by is the fact that you know we're three women sitting around this table at relative you know senior positions in our career and all three of us have children two children and we are where we are notwithstanding that right and yes it's hard as Steph said uh, before this morning I sent Angelina a picture of the fact of my two children in my bed because they, <laughs> they came in in the middle of the night and my husband managed to get out into the spare room <laughs> I didn't uh, but uh, you know and, it, and I'm tired as a result but it's, um, but you know, it's manageable, and um, you can still do it. Um, and but I, you know, obviously it would be uh, better if things were a bit more equitable. Um, I think they are going in that direction, um, but we're not quite there yet. But I, you know, I have hope for the future. Yeah, I am also optimistic, and um, I don't want to speak for Naomi, but. Both of our husbands, I don't know about you, Angelie, but both of our husbands took a long time off um, or took part of our maternity leave. Um, and that, in terms of your point, redressing the balance was a game changer. Yeah. Like, he suddenly was like, oh, <laughs> this is, you know, not that he wasn't supportive before, but as in yeah, yeah. you actually understood what the day-to-day -day management of two young children actually involves. And it was a total game changer. And, um, you know... I, all of us, I think, are, travel quite a lot and, and having that, that also means that the other person has to sort of step up and take responsibilities on. And I would also say in terms of being optimistic, um, a career in law gives you a great deal of flexibility. Um, my husband's a teacher and he, he couldn't do the things that I managed to do during my working day. Um, and the law is really great for that. And lots of people I work for as well generally speaking demonstrate quite a good understanding of what managing your career and having a home life involves um, and that's not given in all spaces I think. Well it's really great to see this sort of optimistic shift um, from you know the traditional kind of woman being at home and taking maternity leave all the time to more equal um, spread of responsibilities uh, and I think now I just kind of want to transition more into your experience in international arbitration specifically. Um, and I guess we'll preface with what it is uh, first. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, so that there's more context. Um, so yeah, Angeline, would you want Do to... Do what is international arbitration? Well, I mean, it is actually such a broad church, but I mean, if you strip it back, basically what it is, is an alternative dispute resolution procedure so it's um, oftentimes but not always um, a private dispute resolution procedure before a privately appointed um, tribunal rather than a court process 
the tribunal members are oftentimes individuals who are selected by the parties or if not an arbitral institution. Um, the key selling factor always of arbitration was it was more flexible than court procedure. So you don't have a um, very detailed book that tells you how procedure works. You have um, procedure which is in theory a lot more flexible than court procedure um, which is sort of agreed on by the parties or directed by the arbitral tribunal and um, but I think also particularly in, think, in terms of thinking about what difference does it make to your career the reason arbitration is often used for big international disputes either commercial disputes or um, we've talked about investment treaty disputes of public and international law disputes and that's particularly relevant, I think, from all of our perspectives, because it's a career which involves a lot more international travel, a lot more understanding of different cultural perspectives. Um, so that's it. I don't know if any either of you would add to that. No. Okay, good. Phew. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I guess this would be a question for all of you, because you're working in different aspects of international arbitration, different positions. So what would be the difference of qualifying as a solicitor or a barrister in this field um, and how does the work that you do day-to-day -day differ? It might make sense if I start with that just because yeah. I've been both solicitor and barrister. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so um, well l let me start with the overlap, there's quite a lot which is the same and so it whether you're a solicitor doing international arbitration work and I've noticed that both Steph and Naomi quite properly introduced themselves as solicitor advocates. So, and I was a solicitor advocate before I became a barrister. So, w what you're doing is, and I think this oftentimes, but not always, differentiates yourself. Um, solicitors who do international arbitration work from solicitors who do court work. Solicitors who do international arbitration work quite often will be um, drafting all of the legal submissions which go to the arbitral tribunal. They will oftentimes be appearing as advocates before an international tribunal. That is what I do for my cases as a barrister. So I'm doing the legal submissions and I'm doing the um, advocacy before the tribunal. So that much I would say it is a significant overlap. The biggest difference I think is that um, if you are operating within a law firm, you are doing far more of the client handling, which I still do as barrister, um, but that's certainly, definitely more of a, um, a role which solicitors play. The other sort of major difference, I think, is that when you're a barrister, you are not responsible for um, practice management in the same way as you are if you're operating within a law firm, and by that I mean uh, appraisals of other members of your team, um, advancing um, the careers of others within your team, thinking about um, business generation for the law firm, um, which is, I mean, you generate business as a barrister, but you don't, you're not thinking about it in a sort of team building perspective. So that I think is the difference. So I'm, I guess what I'm saying is you guys have more to do than I do is that, is that right? I, I don't think that that's true but that's the sort of you know we, we so that, that those I think are sort of substantively the difference and then there are good things and bad things around about that which means that as a barrister 
I get more weight, probably way more time to sit there with the papers and think about legal arguments and do legal research myself than as you get more senior law firm you get to do. I'm not saying don't do it, but, but time becomes a bit more pressed. Um, but then the bits that I miss out on are, you know, a bit less sort of client interaction, which I really enjoyed when I was in a law firm and also being part of a, there are teams, it's not to say, I mean, I'm sort of putting in a bit stock terms, every team I ever work in with a barrister, you become part of that team, whether you're a permanent part of, you're not a permanent part of the team the same way as you are a law firm, but you, you slot into teams and you're always part of the team. So it's not, you're not devoid of team work. There's still a lot of team work, but it's not a sort of a permanent team as you would be in a law firm. And, and sometimes, you know, I actually do really miss that. Does that help? Yes, thank you. I would just add just one point, um, just from my experience of having uh, trainees recently, is there is a misconception that solicitors don't do advocacy in the international yeah. arbitration space. Um, and I, I don't think the emphasis on it is universal as between teams in, yeah. in the city. There's certainly A&O, my current team, and Naomi's team, um, the emphasis on doing advocacy is quite strong that's not to say that you wouldn't get a barrister involved but that partners will do advocacy at hearings as well yeah I mean but there are practices where that isn't the case so I think yeah, yeah it, it really depends on which which firm you go into um, and there'll be you know traditional litigation practices doing arbitration where they will always use the barrister on their on their cases um, I mean I think there's there's some other differences in that you know we tend to do a lot of the case management side of things and um, in the way that barristers do less of that. So, I mean, I've got a case, I mean, I've just, I say that because I'm just about to come on to a big um, international matter where um, there are already barristers instructors and we're joining, we'll maybe joining the group as a, a council, but also a team of associates that will facilitate the case management side of things. Um, as Angeline pointed out, there is this, You've got obviously Angeline does have clients. A lot of her clients are law firms. Um, mm. My clients are companies or governments, or um, and that means that the business development that I'm involved in is different to the business development that Angeline's involved in to some extent. Because yeah, I, I mean, think that's fair. Yeah, um, yeah that's fair. Uh, which has its positives and its negatives. Um, positives being that you know you. You know, I need to be abreast of particular sectors that I uh, work in, um, and so I go to industry events. And um, you know, if it's particular regions that I'm focused on, I will go out and I will um, speak at conferences and meet people in those regions. I know Adeline does some of that, but she's um, more of the exception in in a way. Do you think? Um, well, probably less so. I think sort of barristers becoming a bit more cleared up about business development and. And I also think that some, I mean, I certainly have my own examples from experience that barristers are sometimes directly um, contacted by the end client, if you like. But I think it's fair to say, you know, this is all like a different difference in emphasis and certain, and you're right, Naomi, that you're looking more at the end client and my clients actually are more law firms rather than the end client, but it's not exclusively so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think also a sort of big part of it is the, um, is the um, financial pressure, right? So in the sense that if you're in a law firm, you're a partner, you're accountable to your other partners, or ultimately you'll be a partner who's accountable to your other partners for how much business or income you generate, whereas as a barrister, you are more accountable to yourself as to how much 
business or income that you generate for yourself if that makes sense so it's sort of that that I think is quite Mm. different um ultimately between the two professions but when you're starting off as an associate it's less of an issue it's it's just as you get further up the chain that that that's how the emphasis tends to play out I think yeah and you just mentioned you know the differences between uh kind of the responsibilities you have as a partner and associate. So that's something I want to go deeper into. So um, if Naomi and Stephanie, if you would like to express your view on this, how does how do your jobs kind of differ? What is the jump from being a senior associate to being a partner like? Uh, well, I can talk about the senior associate aspect, um, but I would probably say as a general matter, well, when you kind of reach a senior associate level, you're kind of managing the matter day to day. This kind of varies, I think, culturally between firms, though, but I would say as a general matter, you are maybe managing a couple of mid and junior level associates, probably also a trainee in kind of doing all the day to day running of the case, um, whether that's drafting pleadings or witness statements or coordinating the expert evidence or doing all the document management, ensuring the documents have been reviewed and then the evidence kind of collated, um, etc. Preparing for hearings, cross scripts for the advocates, uh, drafting the hearing presentation slides, kind of all the um, kind of day-to-day stuff, that's how best I would describe it, but also sort of managing juniors and mids in your team and also having quite a lot of interface um, with the client but I think that that is heavily dependent on who you work for and the style of the partner or whether a barrister is also involved Um, there are kind of lots of different um, factors and I am currently working for two different partners with completely different styles one of them wants to be drafting himself um, and (laughs) sending me stuff that I would usually expect to be doing but he just loves being involved with with the drafting versus someone else who I'm working for who is just completely hands-off. So I think it it just depends. Yeah. I think probably the difference between being um, a senior associate and a partner, um, or the biggest one is obviously as a senior associate, you may be you're sort of really focused on your case management. As a partner, you're doing the case management and you're, you've got ultimate supervisory responsibility for that, um, but you're also a business owner. Um, and so you are responsible for your you know, sort of HR side of things as regards your team, you're responsible for bringing in work. Um, you're responsible for um, participating in the management of a law firm. Um, so it's, you know, you're, I mean, I love the work. Um, I'm probably a bit more of a hands-on style partner. <laughs> um, and um, so, you know, I, I don't, shy away from that and I and I want to be doing that in the most part but you know things ultimately get a lot busier because there are all of these other things um, that you're doing alongside of it which comes as part of managing a business. Mm-hmm. And also uh, one more difference that I wanted to discuss as well is the cross-jurisdictional one. So I guess this is more of a question for Stephanie because you work at a US law firm as you said um, but I do realise you also have experience in UK law firms, so what is kind of the difference between the cultures and uh, I guess the nature of work as a lawyer in those different firms or uh, jurisdictions? In, do you mean comparison between like US firm and US yeah. and UK, yeah. Um, in all honesty, I actually haven't found there to be a massive difference. 
Um, I think it's probably changed over it's time. Pro- I, I think, think there used, yeah, yeah. I think there used to be big differences culturally. Um, but I would say that the pressures, the complications, the it's this, it's kind of the same. I think also because lots of US firms in London now are just full of ex UK law, law lawyers. So mm. actually, um, and you know, hours targets are not dissimilar either. So the kind of working pressures are, I would say, broadly the same. But I think it really does depend from law firm to law firm. So does law firms have a culture, but it's yeah. not necessarily dependent whether they, yeah. they they were originally conceived as UK or US-based law firms? Sorry, yeah, that's it. No, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. I think it's it's a it, different law firms have different personalities. That is for sure. True. Yeah. Um, you know, Steph mentioned hours targets. There'll be firms that have you know, what they prioritise is grind. Yeah. And the hours targets are extremely high. Um, you'd be remunerated for that, but that's part of the personality of the firm, as it were. And there are other firms that have more emphasis on, well, we're not going to pay as much, but we'll give you more associate development, for example. Um, and you have to make a decision as to which type of culture suits you better. Um, I mean, I've seen a change between my previous firm and my current firm in terms of style and to some extent and my firm my new firm's very enthusiastic um which i love um <laughs> which actually i attributed to it being very good but um but maybe not maybe it's just enthusiastic people um so i think yeah but it, it, it's each firm has a different personality yeah and I actually kind of um there are different systems between all firms right so um gibson dunn has a free market system which they're very proud of but that basically um equates to you having to go out and get your own work what is a free market system? So you basically, in theory, you know, can go to any partner within the firm and say, I want to work for you and I want to do this type of work, um, rather than kind of being maybe siloed to one or two or three partners and being maybe managed by a practice group manager who says, well, I want you to work on this case or this is what the work plan is for the next, you know, however long. Um, so there's a big onus on you to keep yourself busy and to be getting the range of work that you want to do. Um, no one's going to just kind of... But does that mean that partners have less responsibility for you? I think it does, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it suits a certain personality type. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah have to want to kind of be quite vocal and say, this is what I want to do. Give me a chance to work for you. Um, so you have to be very proactive. And I don't think that that's true across the board in other firms no so if you if you're somebody who basically wants a bit more guidance and support which is completely fine but yeah that may not be the firm for you, you yeah really i want to say that's why in a firm where partners sort of at least normally have responsibility for the associate teams and your career development yeah, yeah. that makes sense um, and, sorry and i would also say actually I, I don't know if this is true across the board with us firms but um i think uk firms tend to have just a lot more train structured training um, kind of throughout your career and I think it's fair to say that there's less emphasis on that in the US firms mm. although my firm does have a lot of that so okay. and we're US but that might also be historic his, because the firm has merged with lots of other firms mm. yeah. I would also like um, to ask Angeline about you know the barrister chambers and how is the environment there different than in a law firm and how does that like work as well because I do realize that barristers you kind of have your independent work so as you said you're not part of like a permanent team 
So uh, how, how, how do chambers work? Well, I think it probably depends on what level you're at. But so we, um, everyone's self-employed um, and doing their own work, as you say. Um, work at a junior level is um, generated mostly, I would say, from work that comes into chambers so you sort of you have a clerking system so the people who are responsible in a way for getting you work particularly at June level or the clerking team and what they will be doing is introducing you to particular solicitors or if work is coming into more senior barristers within chambers they're assembling teams and they're matching people up and, and, and getting the right people um, or junior members of chambers on cases but then, you know, as you develop your career and you become more senior, the onus then transits, uh, tr uh, the onus shifts to be on the more senior barrister to have developed those client contacts, by which, as discussed earlier, would be mostly solicitors. Um, and to and work will then start to come into them as someone who's the solicitors known they've used before, or you've got a particular reputation in a particular field or a particular type of experience. So it sort of moves, I think, the more senior you get and I also think that the bar is sort of modernizing um, I mean I say that not having been a barrister so only for seven or eight years so I kind of uh, and I, I come from it I suppose with a bit of a solicitor perspective which um, but but I but I see that now particularly my chambers one of the things that really impresses me about the junior members of chambers is that they are incredibly collegiate actually for people who are self Employed groups of individuals, they're very supportive of each other, and um, we have um, sometimes um, marketing initiatives which are done in collaboration with members of chambers. So we have a really phenomenal, in my view, uh, um, a series of articles and events on, for example, um, environmental. Um, aspects of the law. I which, love them. But, I mean, they're so great on <laughs> yeah, this. So but that's really sort of junior-led, and they they are so good in the yeah. substantive. And, and but so I think things are really changing in that perspective, and and that's just really wonderful to see. And it's one of the things which makes me really love being part of this particular chamber set. So um, yeah. Thank you. Um, but yeah, thank you for offering those fascinating insights about your careers in international arbitration. Um, and then as sort of like a last point, um, are there any career highlights, fun moments that you have that you would just like to share and make people excited by <laughs> to start their journeys? Oh my God, so many. Yeah. I don't know. I actually have four. You got four. Actually, <laughs> okay, but I'll be really quick. Yeah, go on. Go the first is the first time, so I, when I was uh, maybe one year PQE, we did a hearing at the Peace Palace uh, in The Hague, and I remember walking through the gates and just thinking, wow, <laughs> this is so cool, and taking a picture of my mum, and I, just, I was so excited. So, so number one. Number two, um, Naomi and I did um, a long series of hearings at the World Bank in Paris, and you know working all night every every hour and it was just a great team and it was even though it was such hard work it was just great fun and you felt that I felt that we were working on something really important um so so number two and um, number three was my client's secondment which kind of came to me when we were discussing um the things we've been talking about 
Um, I, I did a comment for an energy company for nine months and it was a long time ago now, but I feel like I'm still sort of, I'm still talking about it. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> And the connections that I made on that secondment were really significant and it's also really shaped how I've um, focused my practice afterwards. So did it give you some really good insights into what's important to your clients as well, I imagine? Yeah, it was just, and it was an amazing time to be there because of the environmental, climate change, etc. issues that were kind of affecting the company and it's really shaped where where my interest now lies. Um, And then the fourth one um, was... This week, I went to Dubai Arbitration Week, and I was speaking on a panel representing my firm, and it it felt like a, a step in my career that was really significant in terms of going to an international arbitration week, representing my firm, meeting clients, um, speaking in front of quite a, um, a quite a big audience on on issues that I really care about. Um, so those are my four. I'm not going to do four, I, um, but I mean, like Angelina, there's so many. Um, I think one thing that's, you know, we're really privileged in international arbitration because um, we get to travel and we get to meet people um, from all over the world and go to places we wouldn't otherwise have gone to. Um, so there are lots of experiences in that uh, connection. Um, probably like, you know, a real, something that was really, really formative for me um, that made me feel like I've made it and um, that I still look back on fondly today is when I was about two and a half years qualified I had the opportunity to plead um, before the Iran US Claims Tribunal um, on behalf of Iran and I think that um, it was just one of the most interesting cases um, that I've ever done to this day um, the, politi- the political dynamics were incredible um, you know being there as a woman um, pleading for Iran, a young woman pleading for Iran with you know the United States across from me um, was incredible, and um, it has it, it was amazing at the time, and it's kind of been why I've continued to pursue everything today. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a really good one. I mean, I'm not sure I can top that one. <laughs> All the so I got in that first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's just so difficult, isn't it? I mean, I think that well, the things that always stay with me is just being in different amazing jurisdictions with amazing people. That's always sort of the bit that I've loved about my career. So I And I don't even... It's so hard to know where, where to start. I mean, I was thinking the other day of... Um, training that I did in Myanmar after it just opened up with a former court of appeal judge and then sort of ending up in Bangkok on my birthday with randomly friends from work, former court of appeal judge, friends from school and friends from my training contract all happened to be in Bangkok and we had dinner and that was amazing and then doing a hearing um, uh, in the Inter-American Human Rights Court in Costa Rica, that was pretty incredible. A hearing in Miami with just like a really amazing team of people, um, you know, being in Asia, being in Mauritius, um, doing various different things. It's just all so incredible. I think, you know, I was thinking actually I probably ought to have a couple of career highlights. So one, I suppose, has got to be taking silk this year. I yeah, mean, for sure. I should. I'd be remiss. And your that. silk party. <laughs> and, the, and the silk party. But I tell you very quickly what was amazing about my silk party um, was. Just the amount of, um, going back to previous conversation, women that I've met in the law and I'm privileged to sort of meet and know who all came and it felt like 
this was just really something important for all of us. And I mean, not, you know, that, no, yeah. yeah, and that was, and I loved that. That was really actually, but that was incredibly personally special to me. And then the other sort of one is that when I left um, a and I went to the bar, of course I got called to the English bar. That was all very nice and special, but more important to me was I was called to the Belize bar which is a proper sort of court application process where you go into court and they make a skeleton argument. You don't know if the judge is going to accept you. And I thought at one point uh, there was a book open with my name in it. And, I, and so I thought, oh God, well, I'm definitely getting in now because I can see that someone's like, papered my name. And I mentioned it to a lawyer afterwards because I did get called. Um, and it was really wonderful and special to be accepted into that community, which is part of the world that when I started off my legal career, I probably never even heard of the jurisdiction, but to be then part of the legal community there was really special um, and it was a recognition of sort of a decade of of spending time there but I did say to someone afterwards I you know I saw my name papered in and I thought I'm definitely in she's like nope sometimes they don't let you in and they just paper right over you <laughs> <laughs> so I was quite pleased so that was really lovely all of those moments how special yeah it's a great it's a really fantastic career yeah yeah I mean just to be mindful of time I just want to thank you all so much for coming for this, to this episode to share your very inspirational journeys and hopefully inspire to anyone who's listening. It just certainly did for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, it's really great to see um, successful women in this industry and kind of speak about your experiences and gain some wisdom from that as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you so much.